someone that you would never expect to be heroic in any way at all whatsoever, does it seem like they have the capability or the qualities to do something in that kind of manner, and yet in the end, they're the ones that pull through? You've probably seen many of these in books and in movies, especially for those of you that don't read. And you might even be thinking of a couple of these off the top of your head in the moment right now, some of your favorite ones. Now, when I was in fifth grade, Harry Potter overtook the world. And it seemed like it just took off from there. And this has been a very prominent series for years. There's seven books. They made eight movies because they took the last book and broke it into two movies. But this character on the screen here is a character from Harry Potter. His name is Neville Longbottom. Now, the way that the book portrays this particular character is somebody that you would not perceive from the very beginning that he is going to be a hero of any kind in this story. He's just not looked at in a positive light. It seems like there's just a whole lot of misfortunate thing, unfortunate things that tend to happen to this guy. And you just kind of wonder what's going to be his deal in this story. But it's the way that even if you watch the movies, you're looking at the picture right there, that there's a certain way that he's portrayed and you already get that feeling. So the book and the movie do a good job of portraying this somehow. But yet, what ends up happening to this guy? Unlikely heroes. And I think throughout Scripture, we come across different people who, at just the right time, they manage to do something that, that, that fascinates us, or they end up being the, quote, hero of the story whenever it just didn't seem like it was going to turn out that way. And we're going to talk about one of those in the book of Judges tonight. And before we get started, I want us to understand what exactly is going on in the book of Judges. First off, let's, let's think about this because we're going to need this later in the story, but Judges would be considered the dark ages of Israelite history. It really wasn't a good time for the people of Israel on a moral standpoint. They really had abandoned God a lot, and you can see in the PowerPoint here that there was this cycle that was continuously happening. They would abandon God and fall into sin, then they'd go through judgment, and then they'd be so miserable that they wanted repentance. And so then God would then send somebody to deliver His people, and then they'd go back and start all over again, and it just happens over and over and over again. And the people that He would use to deliver would be these judges. So you think of judges, and you think of someone like John Hudson holding a gavel, but in reality what this is in Scripture is it's someone that was sent to deliver the people by God from the oppression that they were in at the time. So what's going on here is this is, the cycle is continuing to happen, and it happens at the end of chapter 10, and it's setting the stage for chapter 11 where somebody is going to have to be used in order to get Israel out of the, out of the misery, repentant stage that they're in. They need somebody that's going to have to help them. So let's begin reading in Judges chapter 11, the first three verses. Now Jephthah the Gileadite was a mighty man of valor, but he was the son of a harlot. And Gilead begot Jephthah. Gilead's wife bore sons, and when his wife's sons grew up, they drove Jephthah out and said to him, You shall have no inheritance in our father's house, for you are the son of another woman. Then Jephthah fled from his brothers and dwelt in the land of Tob, and worthless men banded together with Jephthah and went out raiding with him. Well, that's not too much of an introduction right out the gate. Hey, uh, Jephthah, just because you were born the son of a harlot, I, we really don't want you here. As a matter of fact, if you leave, we can get more of the inheritance. And 
really you're not that much part of the family because you were born of a harlot. So once you just get out of here, they basically disown Jephthah. And so he leaves. He doesn't really have a choice. He's rejected, and so he has nowhere to go. So he leaves and kind of finds his way in life, gets together with these guys that they call worthless men. How would, how would you like to be known as that in Scripture? Yeah, I was part of the worthless men with Jephthah whenever we were trying to find our way in life. But that's what happened because these people rejected them. And so then what happens is the situation is heightened to where the people of Ammon have come toe-to-toe with the people of Gilead, the Israelites, and they're thinking, we want to take this land back that's ours. Well, the Israelites are thinking, who are we going to get to fight these people? We don't have anybody. So what's it say in verse 5? And so it was when the people of Ammon made war against Israel that the elders of Gilead went to get Jephthah from the land of Tob. Then they said to Jephthah, Come and be our commander that we may fight against the people of Ammon. And check out what Jephthah says. He says to the elders of Gilead, Did you not hate me and expel me from my father's house? Why have you come to me now when you were in distress? I'm sure that was a little awkward, wasn't it? They're in trouble... And I wonder if they talked to themselves and said, well, we could try so-and-so, so-and-so, so-and-so. We really don't want to use Jephthah, but if we have to, I guess we will. But I guess he was their best option. So they go down and get Jephthah after they told him, you don't belong here. And so Jephthah's thinking, wait a second, you didn't want me here, and now that you want something, you want me back. And so they go through this negotiation process to where if Jephthah agrees to do this, he will get to be the leader. Now, his first, his first course of action is he walks up to the Ammonites and he tries to be diplomatic about the situation. He walks up and says, why are you trying to make war with Israel? What's going on here? Well, he says, well, basically Israel took our land. And if you read this part of the story, I'll summarize it, but if you read this part of the story, Jephthah makes some pretty good arguments here. He says, actually, Israel took it from the Amorites, not you. And besides, you, you live on this land that you claim your God, Chemosh, gave to you, and yet God gave us this land, so what's the difference in that by saying our gods gave us that land? The Moabites used to own the land that you want, but they haven't said a word to us, and besides, it's been 300 years that we've occupied this land, and now you want to say something? It's actually a pretty good argument that Jephthah makes here, but there's, there's people sometimes that you deal with, and it doesn't matter how much sense you try to tell them, or how much logic and rationale you try to use, whenever they're stubborn, they're just flat out stubborn. And that's exactly what happens. So the king of Ammon wants to go to war with the Israelites. So Jephthah is getting prepared for this. And check out what Jephthah does before he goes to battle. Verse 29, Then the Spirit of the Lord came upon Jephthah, and he passed through Gilead and Manasseh, and passed through Mizpah of Gilead, and from Mizpah of Gilead he advanced toward the people of Ammon. And Jephthah made a vow to the Lord and said, If you will indeed deliver the people of Ammon into my hands, then it will be that whatever comes out of the doors of my house to meet me, when I return in peace from the people of Ammon, shall surely be the Lord's, and I will offer it up as a burnt offering. Seems like a pretty steep vow to make. And I often wonder in this situation, is it one of those things where Jephthah was so desperate for something good to happen that he tried to bargain and make a rash vow with God? 
how many people try to do that when it just seems like life isn't going very well or when they want something to happen really, really bad? They'll say, God, if you will just do this, then I'll... You fill in the blank. So he makes this steep vow, and lo and behold, he is victorious. And so he gets ready to come home, and he's ready to celebrate. And you remember that vow he made? When Jephthah came to his house at Mizpah, there was his daughter coming out to meet him with timbrels and dancing, and she was his only child. Besides her, he had neither son nor daughter. And it came to pass, when he saw her, that he tore his clothes and said, Alas, my daughter, you have brought me very low. You are among those who troubled me, for I have given my word to the Lord, and I cannot go back on it. I wonder what went through his mind in this moment. The text shows grief. He tore his clothes. But what if we were in that moment? Would it be very gut-wrenching? Would you get that feeling where it seems like your stomach just kind of drops out from under you? And it seems like your insides are now full of misery? I don't know, but he did make that vow. And here's what's intriguing about the story is that if you read the rest of the story it appears that Jephthah goes through with this vow. And here's where it gets a little complicated because you're thinking, well, wait a second. He did something good for God and now he wants to sacrifice his daughter, which we know that God would not approve of. And so then the situation is kind of like, well, which one is it? I guess it depends on who you talk to. But if you were to take this particular situation and you were to go and try to research what exactly did Jephthah do here, you would get two different answers all throughout. Now, the first time I read this, naturally interpreting the text with the flow of the text, it appears that Jephthah did indeed sacrifice his daughter. And I was curious, so I reached out to two professors of mine back when I was at Heritage who could read Hebrew. I said, can you look at this story and see if this is what Jephthah really did? They read it, and they said, well, according to what I'm reading in Hebrew, this is what Jephthah did. He sacrificed his daughter. And yet on the flip side of this, there are people who will say, well, he didn't really sacrifice his daughter. What he really did was he dedicated his daughter to the Lord in service of the tabernacle, very similar to what Samuel did, or what um, uh, Hannah did with her son, Samuel. And so you can go back and forth, back and forth, back and forth, but... The bottom line is this. The bottom line is there was grief because a great sacrifice was going to be made either way. And I want you to think through something with me for just a moment here. When you think about Jephthah's background, he was the son of a harlot who was disowned and basically went and lived his life however he saw fit. So whenever he came back to the people of Israel... He had half pagan in him anyway. If you read different verses in the book of Judges, especially chapter 17 and even at the end of chapter 21, it says that the people did what they wanted to do in their own eyes. And earlier I said this is the dark ages of Israelite history. And it's one of those things to me when I look at this that the theme of what Jephthah did actually fits the theme of Judges. Because at the same time these people will do something good, they turn right around and equally do something 
just as equally bad, and it's a constant, vicious cycle. And what happens is, is sometimes, and this can happen to any one of us, is that when we're trying to live this life, we sometimes go through this cycle where we're not as close to God as we should be, and you know what happens? Our moral compass gets off a little bit, doesn't it? To where the things that we think are morally good, well, are they really that good compared to what they could be? And how easy is it that as soon as we think we're doing something good, we're turning around and doing something just as bad, if not two, three, four times more than the good things that we're doing because our moral compass is messed up. Just something to think about. It's an interesting part of the story, but the thing is, is I don't want this to be the message of the story, but it's something that happens in the story. And so now that the story has made it to this point, what are we to make of this story? Well, what happened to our character Neville Longbottom? They get to the part where they get to school, and this is him when he's a little bit older, as you can tell. And here's the thing with Neville. He never had the best clothes when he was at the school compared to everybody else. He didn't seem to make friends very well. People picked on him. He was a target. And then the big thing with going to this Hogwarts school is that you would get to bring a pet that was yours. And most people, you know, they'd be going to pick out these certain owls. The owls were the thing. Well, you know what Neville got to bring because he didn't have enough money? He brought a little toad. That was his pet. Nothing compared to like what everybody else. And here's the thing. Could Neville Longbottom help his situation? Was it his fault that that was the hand that he was dealt? No. And yet, here's the thing. He was treated this way over something that he couldn't even help to begin with. Nobody gave him a fair chance. But the thing is, as you move along in the story, there comes a moment when Neville has a chance. You see, right here in this particular scene, this particular picture, you're in the seventh book, the eighth movie. It's been a long process. And this is Ron and Hermione in the story. They're two, two of the biggest characters that when you see them on the screen, whenever you read about them in the books, you know that these are the people that are going to carry this story. These are the heroes. Well, obviously the main character, Harry, was off in the woods dealing with the main villain, but the main villain had a sidekick. That was Ron and Hermione's job was to take care of the sidekick, and it was this massive, long, powerful snake. And they were trying every which way possible to outsmart the snake, do everything they could to get the snake where they needed to put the snake to kill it. All hope was lost. They tried everything. In this particular moment, this is them getting together because the snake has them squared in a corner and about to make the final strike to end it for them. And right in this moment when the snake's about to strike, who shows up? Nobody but Neville Longbottom. The guy that was never given the fair chance. The guy that didn't have the money like everybody else. The guy that didn't have the status like everybody else. The guy that was looked down by everybody. He was the unlikely hero in that moment. And yet, I look at the story of Jephthah at the very beginning, and I think, could Jephthah help the fact 
of how he was born and where he was born? No, that wasn't his fault. And yet, why is it that as he was growing up, because of something that wasn't his fault, they looked down on him and said, get out of here. And I think about, isn't that something very similar to what we deal with in the world today? I mean, here's the thing. How did the writer know exactly how to portray Neville Longbottom to get him to look and make you think the way that you did? On screen, how did the people know how to make Neville Longbottom look so that you could get exactly what they wanted you to get out of Neville Longbottom? Because that's how the world thinks about people sometimes because we have stigmatisms and stereotypes and so much of this stuff and how we look at people and treat people is totally unfair in so many ways. As a matter of fact, when people are treated unfairly, whenever they didn't even have a chance, it is one of the most unfair things that happens in this entire world. And I've seen it happen everywhere. I remember being in the halls of high school and being in a lunchroom, and you could look around and see the landscape of the different groups of people, and those who are alike will stick together. And you know what? And a lot of times, most of the time, those who are of the status quo and who are the majority will look down on those who are not. And if really for no other reason than just because. That's the mindset, that's the trajectory that we've taken. And I've even seen it happen in the church. People who don't have the best clothes, people who don't have the best hygiene, and yet, how are they treated when they come to the one place where they're supposed to have the most love they could, they could ever receive? This is what happened to Jephthah. He was not given a fair chance at all, and there was no way in the world he was supposed to be the guy that was going to deliver God's people. But yet, he was given that chance. And what happened whenever he was given that chance? He delivered the people, and God was glorified. And here's, here's the thing that, that I want us to think about when it comes to this particular situation with Jephthah, is that the way that we look and treat people can hinder the potential they see in themselves that God created them to be. And when we do that, what is missing in the church by that person because of the self-esteem and confidence that we have now hindered in that person? We will look at people and get them to think about how we think they're supposed to be, and therefore they can't see how God designed them to be. That's exactly what happened to Jephthah. And yet, the people that were distressed, the people that got rid of him, Jephthah was the one that delivered them. The potential that people have in the church is always there, no matter who they are, where they're from, what they may politically believe, what kind of race they are. Just look at the world around us, because people are so divided by this. Whether it is race or politics, or because you, you went to this school, or because you played for that team. Or be, you see what I'm saying? We, we find ways that all of a sudden we have imaginary walls that should have never been there to begin with. And when Jephthah was given the chance, this is what he decided to do. Let me tell you guys something. My job is awesome to work with the youth. One of the reasons why my job is awesome is because I get to spend a lot of time with them. Some of the most special times I have 
with these kids is when we go on retreats or trips in general. You know why? Because we spend a lot of time together. We really get to know each other. And it's in moments like that when conversations happen, relationships get deeper, and then sometimes things are said that just stick with you. And I'll never forget, we were at a retreat. And the entire group was sitting in a circle. And there was a particular team. We got to the end of our activity, and I said, as we wrap up this activity, I want to give anybody in this circle one more chance to say anything they felt has been left unsaid. And one of the teens popped up and said, if I could give you guys some advice, it would be this. I want you to start finding people who are not like you. I want you to talk to people that you don't normally talk to. Because if you do this, you will find joy in that and you will see lots of blessings from it. And I'm sitting there thinking, wow, what a lesson I just learned. This was coming from a teenager. I heard a sermon one time. The sermon was on loving God. And he got to the example of the Good Samaritan, and here's what he said, and I'm going to quote it. Everyone is the Good Samaritan when you get to choose your neighbor, but you don't. But you don't. And have you ever noticed at the end of that story, too, in the Good Samaritan, that even when Jesus says, who was the good neighbor, the lawyer still doesn't even utter the words, the Samaritan. He just says, him, pretty much. Was it so bad that you couldn't even say Samaritan? When people were given chances and God is able to be glorified, these imaginary walls that we've created with people find a way to be broken down. And look at the good that comes from it. Jephthah had a valiant vow. I have given my word to the Lord and I cannot go back on it. He made a commitment to God that he absolutely refused to back down from. Think about how steep this vow was. Never back down from it. And what, what, exactly, what exactly makes us consider to have good commitment when it comes to God? How do we measure that? How do, how do I, as an individual, measure my commitment to God? Is it, is it based on how much I have went to church? Is it based on how many services I attend per week? Does that determine my commitment to God? Is it, is it based on how much I'm going to sit down and read my Bible from day to day or week to week? Does that, does that gauge how much commitment that I have to God? Or is it how much time I spend in my prayer life to God? Is that, is that the meter? Is that the bar that I'm supposed to use? Well, if that's the case, who said that? Where do we get this from? Is, is my commitment then based on what I'm doing compared to everybody else? Is my commitment then based on what I think it should be? How many times, I've asked myself this a lot, how many times have I told God when I repented, this is the last time, God, I'll never do it again. And what I do? I did it again. God, I, 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 know, I know I need to be coming to church and making a priority, but this will be the last time I miss. And then what do I do? I miss again. So how do we, how do we measure this level of, of commitment exactly? 
We tell God one thing and then we do something else. We feel like we love God this way and then we feel like we don't. And sometimes what we do is we take how we're feeling and we allow that, we allow that to motivate that. Well, if I always sat around waiting till I felt like doing something, then would I ever accomplish anything? See, it got to be reversed. I need to be motivated so then it will up my feelings instead of waiting around for my feelings to tell me to do something. I tried to think about what's, what was his secret? How do you make a vow this steep? And as you made a vow this steep, and you see the situation right in front of you, how do you not, because of how you feel, how do you not come back from that? How do you put your foot down and still do it regardless of how you feel? He was committed to his commitment. I have made a vow to the Lord, and I can't go back from it. Imagine if that was something that you played in your head over and over and over again. And here's the thing. i got to give credit to his daughter as well, because when you look at both their responses... Both their responses entail this right here. Because of what God had done for them. He brought them the victory because they needed to be delivered. And that's exactly what He did. And now they're thinking, you can't go back on this because they're remembering everything that God just did for them. So the secret is you got to remember the Redeemer. That should always be the motivation in everything that we're going to do. So what exactly are we doing to ensure this proper commitment? What if if this was the reality? What if the reality was that, that God's commitment to you was directly proportional to your commitment to Him? How do you think that would work out for us? And see... At the same time we may think about that, we know that's never going to happen because, number one, that's just not God's nature because He's that committed to us. And here's something that truly fascinates me about God's commitment. Jephthah, in his vow, said, said, God, whatever comes through this door, I will sacrifice it to you. In that moment, he didn't know exactly what it was going to be, who or what. And yet it ended up being his daughter, his only child. And yet the difference between Jephthah, as much as, as much as we sit back and think, how in the world did he do that? God took it up another notch. And in his commitment, he never said this, 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 or this. He said from the very beginning, it's always going to be my son. It's not left up to chance. It's not led up to fate. From the very beginning, my commitment to you is it was always going to be my son. And he never looked back. And then the passage says that while we were still sinners, Christ died for the ungodly. In other words, that means that when I was at my worst in my commitment to God, that's when God was at his best in his commitment to me. That is powerful stuff right there. So what are we doing to ensure this commitment? Jephthah was a valiant victor with a valiant vow. And because of what he did, God was glorified. He was able to deliver the distressed. 
He was committed to his commitment all because he remembered the Redeemer. Jephthah was the unlikely hero who is telling us tonight that we all have the potential to spot how the world makes us feel. God is not going to commit His Son the way He did for us if He didn't think we weren't we're worth it. That's how much He's committed to us. And all I want to do with that is I want to remember my Redeemer to the point that I'm like Jephthah and that I will tell God I want to do this for Him and I just can't go back from that. I want to be firm in that. I want to stand strong in it. And I want to make sure that my commitment to Him is that the best it can possibly be. I've given my word to the Lord and I cannot go back from it. Tonight as we've gathered together, God sees the same potential in someone like Jephthah and every single one of us. And if you're not a Christian tonight, there is something so special, so special that will change your life forever to put on Christ in baptism and become part of the church. To be engaged in this commitment, committed relationship that God is offering to us. And there may be some here who they think about their commitment and they think, I just know it's not been where I want it to be, but I know that if I come and I, and I ask for prayers for my brothers and sisters in Christ, that would be so much greatly appreciated tonight. If there's anything we can do for anybody tonight, would you please come while together we stand and we sing.